It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The FT. What can investors expect from 2014? Why isn't the government's help-to-buy scheme available for all properties? And are expensive cars, watches and Chinese art a better bet than stock markets? I'm Elaine Moore, welcoming you to the first FT Money podcast of the new year. And I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, Lucy Warwick-Ching. Hello. Thomas Hale. Hello. And Jonathan Ely. First up, how helpful is help to buy? The government's flagship scheme is supposed to help people onto the property ladder, but some borrowers might find that they have trouble purchasing a new bill property using the new mortgage guarantees. According to the Treasury, the guarantee scheme is available for all kinds of properties, but many lenders appear to be setting their own limits to it. Thomas Hale has been looking at the controversy. Thomas, there's lots of confusion about the difference between help to buy one, help to buy two. I find it very confusing. Maybe you find it confusing as well. Can you clear it up? Give me a succinct example of what what they both are. Okay. Yeah, there is a lot of confusion. Um, Help to buy one is restricted to new build properties. It's the key difference. Um, So you put down 5% deposit. The government lends you 20% interest-free for five years, and the bank lends the other 75%. Um, With Help to Buy 2, which launched more recently, it was supposed to launch this month, but um, it was moved earlier to October, the government will guarantee 15% of the loan. Um, This means lenders can lend bigger amounts, up to 95%, without jacking the rates up as much as they would have had to have done. Um, So when you think of Helped by two, think of the guarantee. We think of helped by one, think of shared equity. You have shared equity with the government on helped by one. But there is a lot of confusion about helped to buy. I mean, just for example, um, I saw an advert recently saying, um, help to buy is here, we're here to help, and had a list of properties below, most of them about £900,000, and the maximum value on helped to buy is 600000 So it's become a buzzword in the media, and a lot of confusion um, has spread around that. So even the industry perhaps is slightly confused about what it yeah. is and what it can and can't do. So so explain to me the controversy about the sorts of loans that you can get for different sorts of properties. Are there no lenders giving loans through Help to Buy 2 for new builds? Okay, well, just to be clear, it's not, I wouldn't say it's exactly a controversy um, as of yet. Some people say it's no issue at all, and there are arguments why it might not be, but some others, others disagree. But um, basically, there are some lenders giving loans for Help to Buy 2 for new builds, um, RBS and NatWest um, are offering them, um, but the figures are fairly small. They say they only had 65 applications for new build homes via Helped by Two, um, and that's f- about 2,500 in total. And 35 of these have been approved. Um, Halifax 
and other big help-to-buy lender don't offer help-to-buy two loans for new builds. And the reason they give for this is that they already offer 95% mortgages on new builds through New Buy, which was another government scheme designed to encourage supply, you know, encourage um, development. Just to make things extra complicated. Just to make things extra complicated. So um, so basically Halifax um, are saying that they don't need to offer help-to-buy two for new builds because they already have this scheme in place. But one of the, I mean, New Buy, interest in New Buy has really fallen off um, since help to buy came in, I mean, help to buy is really, as I say, the buzzword around uh, residential property now. So there are other schemes around. Why then would I bother buying a new build property um, through help to buy two if I can do it through other schemes? Yeah, um, well, that is a good question. Um, research from the Yorkshire Building Society last year showed that a lot of people feel very put off by the shared equity scheme, um, the shared equity part of help to buy one. So in help to buy one, the government basically owns 20% of your property. When you sell it, um, they take 20% of the profits um, if you haven't paid off the, the interest-free loan yet. Um, but another another key point here, and a lot of people are saying this isn't really an issue now, but it could become an issue in the future because help to buy one just for new build properties will finish before help to buy two, um, at least nine months earlier, but possibly, possibly more. So those using um, help to buy after the end of help to buy one might want to get a new build property through part two, but the, the, the general trend now is that lenders aren't really keen on doing this. And you said before that there are some people who say there's there's no controversy. What are yeah. brokers saying, or who who's yeah. saying there is controversy? Well, I mean, ge- generally people people are saying this is um, more a point of interest or a good talking point about help to buy rather than a controversy. But some brokers I've spoken to are very very surprised, um, and, and and others say that again it it, it res- isn't really an issue now. But if it does become an issue, it will be in the future when help to buy one ends. Um, then we may have a situation where help to buy as a scheme is only existing for the purchase of existing houses. Now, a key thing to remember here is that most people in industry agree the major problem with UK residential property is the lack of supply. Um, There's not enough house building going on. And so if we have this scheme, which has attracted a lot of interest, a lot of media attention, and at some point in the future it's, it's only really operating in a meaningful sense for existing properties, then there is a clear risk that developers might be anxious about this. Thank you very much, Tom. There's more on the pros and cons of the government's helped buy scheme, parts one and two, in this weekend's FT Money, which you can also read via the FT's tablet apps on Kindle and online at ft.com forward slash money. Still to come on the show, the rise and rise of passion investments. First, what can investors expect from 2014? After the exuberance of 2013, world stock markets have got off to a tentative start this year. As extraordinary monetary policy starts to wind down, however slowly, investors are pondering whether the economic recovery is strong enough to keep company earnings growing in the face of higher borrowing costs. And there's still the vast overhang of government debt to deal with. This week, FT Money held a roundtable of investment experts to discuss the outlook for stock markets and other investments in 2014. I'm joined now by Jonathan Ely, editor of FT Money and your usual money podcast host, who chaired the panel along with some of the participants. Jonathan, what did you all talk about? Well, we talked about all sorts of things. We talked about the outlook for the US markets in the light of the Federal Reserve's decision to start reducing its bond purchases. We talked about emerging markets. We talked, and we could have talked all day, in fact, about the uh, phenomenon that is Bitcoin. But one of the most interesting elements of the discussion was the debate about Europe, uh, and in particular the sort of core of Europe, France, Germany, Italy. 
Now, to some people, this represents a, a sort of enormous value trap. There's lots of complacency. Um, there are still huge risks to the uh, to the structure and, and existence of the eurozone. And to other people, it represents a great opportunity. European shares are still fairly cheap, and uh, some level of stability and even growth uh, appears to have returned. Now, I'm joined now by uh, Anne Richards, who's Chief Investment Officer at Aberdeen Asset Management, and by Ewan Cameron Watts, who is the Chief Investment Strategist at the BlackRock Investment Institute. Um, Ewan, if I can ask you first, um, this idea that there's a huge amount of complacency uh, around the eurozone and that it, some someday it's all going to unravel and it's all going to collapse and we're going to be in for a very nasty, uh, rude awakening. Um, what do you think of that? Is it likely next year or at any point? Well, I think, um, Jonathan, that Europe's economic problems are by no means over. They've moved to a different phase uh, as seen through the strength of the currency. I don't think you can say there is a euro crisis uh, at this stage. We've now moved into a phase where the peripheral countries, whilst they're struggling with desperately high uh, unemployment, uh, have at least uh, righted their funding uh, flows, where European banks continue to shrink their balance sheets and yet are able to raise capital in the market so their funding ratios uh, are improving. Uh, and where you know, perhaps the most acute uh, phase of the crisis for now has passed. But you know, if European economic growth in the next five years is 1% to 2% per annum, which is about as good as one can believe it's going to be, European debt levels relative to GDP will continue to rise because uh, that growth isn't high enough relative to uh, relative to the cost of funds to uh, to actually result in a net reduction in debt. And Anne Richards, there's this idea that actually if you buy European shares, you're not really buying a play on the Eurozone or the French economy or the Italian economy. You're buying a collection of companies that sell products um, across the world. And actually, those companies are pretty cheap right now. What do you say to that argument? I think that argument is if pretty cheap might be an overstatement, but certainly you can still find good value in a lot of European companies. And Europe is fortunate that it has a lot of truly international companies which operate at the highest level, at the highest quality level all around the world. They've been continuing to grow and in many cases been continuing to expand their margins, um, even through the crisis. And I think what that um, does is it demonstrates that companies, well-managed companies, are able to insulate themselves to a degree from a sluggish economic backdrop. And I think broadly we think that pattern is likely to continue. But there's no doubt that some of the challenges that Europe still has, and in particular this split that we have now, not even between into a two-tier Europe, but really into a three-tier Europe, where you have Germany at the top end, you have the depressed but perhaps beginning to recover periphery countries at the bottom end, Spain and Greece, for example. But then in the middle, France and Italy, who are at risk of being the real drag in Europe over the next couple of years. And I think those markets do matter for even the more international of European companies. So I think that might be something of a challenge if we don't see real progress being made at some point in, in France and Italy. And finally, do you think there's a danger that the that the euro is all going to blow up this year and that we'll have another, you know, sort of crisis of the type we had in 2011? I don't think that's a, a strong likelihood in 2014. The caveat to that would be 
if we have an unexpected crisis in an individual bank or financial institution in Europe, which might just create an element of fear again in the market. You've seen spreads come in a long way. So you've seen much more confidence come back in the European system. So outside of an unexpected banking crisis, I think you're unlikely to see Eurozone problems flare up again this year. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that they have been healed for all eternity. There are still some big structural imbalances within the Eurozone. Finally, Ewan, um, for, for many years, people have said, well, why, is, why on earth is the euro so strong in, in, in the sort of face of all the problems that Europe um, faces? Do you think that the currency will weaken this year? And if so, would that provide a fillip to, to European companies which are very heavily export dependent? I think that the euro has been strong because Europe runs a current account surplus, which means it doesn't need to import any capital from outside Europe. And Europeans on the whole have held on to the euro uh, as a source of value. So they haven't felt uh, the need to switch to uh, non-euro holdings on the whole. I think in 2014, it really depends on what the dollar does, because Europe will run another current account surplus this year, 2014, as it did in 2013. But I don't think euro is going to strengthen a lot, uh, because in 2013... At the beginning of the year, let's remember, the euro crisis was on everybody's lips, and by the end of the year it wasn't. As Anne says, you know, that could come back again. But assuming it doesn't, and I'd give that a low probability in all honesty right now, then I think maybe the currency, the single currency, actually drifts down a little bit against the dollar uh, because the dollar itself strengthens a bit, uh, as it has done against all other currencies in two th- major currencies in 2013 other than sterling. Now, does that help European companies? It helps to the extent that um, it just reduces the pressure of what I call the euro, euro corset, which has been suffocating um, monetary conditions and liquidity in Europe. It does help companies a little bit at the margin, although European companies have lost quite a lot of competitiveness relative to, say, Japan in the last uh, last two to three years, last year or so, rather. I think it's just more a loosening of European financial conditions, which makes itself felt in a stronger equity market, uh, which would be the outcome of a slightly weaker euro. Okay, thank you both very much. That was Anne Richards of Aberdeen Asset Management and Ewan Cameron Watts of the BlackRock Investments Institute. Thanks, Jonathan. You can read a detailed transcript of this discussion in this week's FT Money or online at ft.com forward slash money. On to our final item for today. Returns on classic cars, art and watches have exceeded stock markets for the past eight years, according to the private bank Coots. And of all these so-called passion investments, it's classic cars that have returned the most. They're up by 257% since 2005. Lucy Warwick-Ching, our resident expert on all things luxurious, has been looking into the numbers. Lucy, first of all, let's go through passion investments. They sound very glamorous, are they? What people like is they like to invest in something that they can physically own. You know, I think people have got very bored with the fact that, you know, no one's getting any return on their money in savings. Investments seem to be quite unpredictable. Very wealthy individuals quite like the fact that they can put money into a classic car. They can own it. They can show people it. They can kind of show off with it. Um, And actually, if they invest right, they they could actually make some money out of it. So what would you consider a passion investment? Can we go through a list? 
Um, so it's things like uh, classic cars, it's art, watches, jewellery, anything that is kind of luxury asset. I mean, I would probably include things like wine as well. Um, it's things that you could actually collect them, you know, you could actually have a hobby and then turn it into a, a bit of an investment. And it has seemed that over the last few years, as um, returns on other investments have gone down or just stayed very boring and stable, that the interest in this has really taken off. You know, people have really started to to look into whether they can make money from these um, alternative asset markets. And do we know why they've taken off? Do we know who's buying them? Well, yeah, I think, again, people have wanted to take a little bit more control over their money. So people like to you know own property as well so you know very very high-end property whereas instead people were investing in kind of commercial property funds now people are actually saying well look let's get together with a couple of us and buy a property outright and then we can actually see exactly what our money's doing i think they've just lost a bit of trust in um, financial services industry and they just want to have much more control over where their money's going and do we know why they're doing so well? Well, I guess it's, um, you know, interest breeds interest and demand breeds demand. So, you know, as more people want to buy these kind of niche works of art, then you're obviously going to get more of a higher demand and you're going to be able to command a, a much higher price for these things. And do you find that people are, are actually using these products or they're just purely holding them in a basement somewhere as an investment? The impression I've got from our readers when I've written about this before is that they're not just buying them and holding them and and keeping them hidden. They tend to have a real interest in them anyway. And I would also recommend that from from speaking to the experts themselves, they say don't bother getting into one of these markets unless you are actually interested in it. And finally, uh, how can you go about buying these kinds of investments? Is it easy? Do you have to have vast amounts of money? I think the problem is is that you want to, if you are going to hold them, then you want to diversify. So you do need quite a lot of money. You don't just want to buy one type of car if you're if you're looking to make an investment of it. So yes, you probably wouldn't look to to do it if you if you didn't have quite a, a large amount of money that you wanted to spend. And then you'll go to these kind of niche. Uh, markets there are kind of niche brokers um so you can kind of look it up on the internet and they have indices that um track exactly what's happening you know it would say with coots they've got this passion investments um index that you can actually look at and see how it's been outperforming but i mean i guess the caveat is that with all these markets you know there could be just one little thing that happens and then it will totally skew the market you you've got to be prepared to lose money you know i guess what people always say with wine you know, buy it because you want to drink it. Because actually, you know, if the investment, if your investment goes down, then you know, at least you could still uh, get enjoyment out of this asset. Thanks very much, Lucy. It's a happy way to end the podcast this week. Lucy, as you may or may not know, is the producer of the Money Show as well as a frequent guest on it. And this is her last week before she heads off on maternity leave. We're going to miss her very much while she's gone, and we're looking forward to welcoming her back when we're expecting her to be an expert on investing for children. There's more on passion investments in this weekend's FT Money, along with a host of other stories, and we'd love to hear your views. You can leave comments at the foot of stories on our website, or you can email us directly. The address once again, money at ft.com. Until next week, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Lucy, Tom and Jonathan. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.